Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace, and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how do we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. And they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I've come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars. And yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem eternum deo. Led out and called to account, he is said always to have replied nothing but, What after all are these churches now? if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God. Excerpt from Friedrich Nietzsche's The Gay Science. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Welcome back to The King's Hall. My name is Brian Sauvey, and we've got the usual gang of troublemakers here. Eric, tell the people hi. Howdy, my peeps. And by the way, before we even get to Dan, <laughs> because Dan, this is just on my brain. We just li- What did we just listen to? What did you just listen to? Oh, that's the madman. It's a excerpt. Oh, there we An go. An excerpt. I don't know. It was, uh, it's, I don't know what we listen to. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an excerpt from Nietzsche where he's basically showing how much more honest the old guard atheists were than the new guard. You know, Dawkins and Dennett with their kind of glib God is dead and we're happy about it. 
Nietzsche, he was convinced God is dead. I mean, obviously he's dead now. God continues to live. But <laughs> Nietzsche, I mean, when he thought about what, what he thought they had done, it killed him. I mean, he, he went mad. He recognized that they had unhitched this, the, the, the earth from its sun. The unmooring hadn't been so distant. Yeah. From reality. Yeah. Like now. Yeah, that does that. The excerpt, 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 excerpt. <laughs> yes. Uh, that you read, it doesn't. It seems somber, right? <laughs> yeah, sure one could say, calling the uh, the churches tombs and sepulchers of God mm. seems mm. sad. Mm. Mm. It is. Well, Dan, <laughs> say hello. hi to the people. Hello. What a lovely day. What a lovely day it is, indeed. I'm so glad we get to read stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll see why here in this first season. <laughs> obviously, smooth transition. <laughs> Uh, our work is the new Christendom, right? We we don't believe God is dead. We believe that he is the living God. Not only is he the living God, but he is continuing to expand his kingdom. And so we're working in this season to build the blueprints of this cathedral of Christendom. And not only do we want to see this cathedral go up ourselves, we, do, we want to inflame you, dear listener, who desire the same. Like We hope that you'll make it your life's work to take up whatever tools the Lord has given you in whatever place the Lord has, you know, called you, and to throw yourself into the work of this cathedral with your whole self and whole life. So to do that in this season, we've had to begin with some demolition work, clearing the job site of our cathedral, of all of the debris that's been in its way. And since, of course, judgment begins with the household of God, so have we. So we've been aiming our sledgehammers so far, mainly at those models and doctrinal systems and cheesy Jesus junk that will need to go if we're to see the cathedral grow up. The big, fast, and famous of megachurchianity, the high-octane emotionalism of revivalism, the pessimism of dispensational Darbyism, and more. And though there is more that we could say on the household of faith side of things, it's time for us to take up our axes in the spirit of our great forefather Boniface, and stride up to the green groves and sacred trees and high places of pagan worship that have also infested the land. As you guys obviously know, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, the West today is much like the land of Canaan when Israel crossed the river behind Joshua. Or maybe it might even be more accurate to say that it's like the land under the periods of Israel's exile and unfaithfulness. It's, it's not a pre-Christian land. It is an apostate. So it's choked with demonic cults and their enslaved adherents. So when you understand what we've been talking about for the last few episodes, that our task, the mission of God, is to disciple the nations, you immediately recognize that you're, you're, you're being confronted with this fact that the nations need to be converted. If we're going to disciple them, they need to be converted. They're lost. They're ensnared by false gods. And so in the next few episodes, we'll be identifying some of the demonic ideologies that undergird the demonic secular humanism and religion that the West is given over to right now. And especially the demonic ideology that undergirds much of probably what's under your feet in your neighborhoods and that you see on TV and on the internet. And, and this was alluded to really in that passage from Nietzsche that, that the idea that God is dead, but more that we killed him and that we decided that his absence was a job opening and now we are God. And so the idol that we think we're worshiping is actually ourselves. So to begin in this episode, we're going to do a flyover of that pagan and idolatrous landscape and ask questions like which idols need to be knocked down? What do the people of the land believe? Where are they enslaved and how? What has brought them to that slavery? 
what has brought them to worship these gods in these ways. And so our goal today is to lay out a creed of their high places, or like their confession of faith. And so we have seven entries in this confession of faith, what they believe, what these green groves and high places are dedicated to that we need to go into with our acts in the spirit of Boniface and chop down in the name of the living God to free people from this slavery. In the first century in this confession of faith, uh, guys, that I'd like to discuss, the belief that man is good, uh, inherently in his nature, that man is good. And a lot of this comes back to the thought of a despicable man <laughs> by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who lived in the, uh, you know, in 1712 to 1778 was his lifespan. He was an intellectual and a writer. Uh, and you can hear, if, you, if you'd like to hear more about this guy, uh, in fact, and I think the more you hear about him, the more you'll hate him. <laughs> you can hear a good biographical sketch of him from uh, a book called Intellectuals by Paul Johnson. He has a, a pretty good entry in the sad tale of Rousseau's life. But Rousseau's essential idea was that man is basically good and that what makes man go wrong isn't any kind of inward sin nature or corruption, but it was actually the contaminating forces of civilization and society. He affirmed a lot of the ideas of John Locke, Tabula Rasa, that man is a blank slate, that society writes on. Uh, he famously said, man is born free, but everywhere is, is everywhere in chains. Basically, that mankind in this state of nature is free and unfettered, but that society corrupts him with, you know, inflames unnatural desires in him. And so he, you know, he was part of this noble savage myth. So, so guys, how do you see this idea of the innate goodness of man influencing the civil religion and cultural uh, culture of our day? Yeah, well, I was going to say, uh, Dan, I just want to bring this up to kind of a higher intellectual level uh, by yeah. talking about a Luke Bryan song. Yeah, thank, um, you. thank you. Thank you for yes. you know, yeah. transcending. I'm trying to, I'm trying, yeah. trying, trying to be a, what's a... All that lowbrow, you know, blue collar. Yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah, a connoisseur, not a snob. Yeah, I, I'm sorry I'm definitely slumming. a snob, though, when it comes to country music. Yeah, Luke, Luke Bryan's like disgusting. Luke, like but, Luke Bryan um, being the, he's the cream of the crop, right, Luke Bryan? He is. I actually have a tattoo of him on my back. Oh. I have not seen it. I almost said I've seen it, but then I realized that Eric would immediately play the Mista. <laughs> Should I call you Mista? Yeah, yeah. This is I actually the him. episode yeah, yeah. Uh, where if Dan actually had that tattoo, I would probably... Tattoo? Tattoo. That's actually the British pronunciation. Um, I, I didn't live there, but I flew over it once. And uh, Yeah, Excellent. anyway, so Luke Bryan, you know, we, we think about Rousseau, and I guess the point I'm making, he has a song called Most People Are Good. So these things work their way into the culture. It's not all just highbrow academia. Like, a lot of people are going to probably hear this and say, yeah, but I've never heard of Rousseau. Yeah, right. Who's this Rousseau character? What are you talking about? I don't know him. Yeah, but we see it a lot in pop culture. It's been uh, something that has dominated. The, the other thing I think that's interesting here is we're talking about idols. So I'll set this up and then kick it over to Dan because that's my job here. The, the Psalms tell us especially that we become like the idols we make. And so when you look at our culture, do you see a vibrant, thriving living organism that you would say, this is good, we want to emulate. Now, it depends who you ask that question. But even people in the mainstream are noticing now, like, I, I've seen a lot of articles lately, like Western America, Western civilization is in its death throes. Um, there's mm. some talk about this. And, and I would just wager it's because of these idols that we've made. Yeah. For the project of this season to be successful, the project of seeing a new Christendom built, there will need to be thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who are equipped to stand for the truth of Scripture against the errors of both the liberal church and the pagan culture. This is one reason we're so glad to be partnering with our sponsor for this season, Reformation Heritage Books. 
Reformation Heritage Books offers a large selection of helpful and theologically rigorous resources on everything from biblical theology to history to blue-collar family discipleship, the type of library and resources that could make the kind of men and women I just described, grounded in the rich heritage of the Reformed faith. We'd like to highlight one resource in particular, their Family Worship Bible Guide, that presents rich devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible, including searching questions to promote conversation and to help you in leading your family in such a way as to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tap the link in the description of this episode to pick one up today. So at this point, Dan, I do want to kick it to you. What are you seeing, uh, as Brian asked, about the innate goodness of man and civil religion? Where do you see this? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I actually, I wanted to talk about the noble savage. Sure. Because this is a Rousseauian idea is that man stripped of civilization, society, cultural influences in itself is good. You see this in such stories like the Brave New, uh, Brave New World, uh, yeah. Huxley, the dystopian uh, book. If you guys haven't read it, it's actually a really interesting snapshot of, yeah. of our current day. Instead of in 1984, where you have this totalitarian government, which we're actually going to talk about in the after hours. So if you guys are patrons or would like to be a patron, you can support us at thekingshall.org. Uh, and you can get content like that. But A Brave New World, instead of being like 1984, where everything is dark and gray and all pleasure is removed, A Brave New World, the government essentially gives you every pleasure. So you can be drunk and have orgies and everything like that. And so society corrupts people in their nature. They become evil because of other evil people. And there's a character that arises who is in the outside of the civilization who is a savage, mm-hmm. and he comes in, and he is moral. He is like the, ah. the shining beacon of light. He is the noble savage. It's it's like a it's a stereotype. Like if somebody looked at Rousseau, his idea, and they're like, yeah, I'll write a story about that. And I would actually like, I, I, I do have a question that I'd like to ask you guys. What is the difference between the noble savage of Rousseau versus the Christian idea of like innocent Adam? Because I think both would say man is good, but what's the difference? Yeah, the, I, I think that one of the key distinctions here that actually gets totally lost in the midst of mainstream Calvinist Christian theology is that a Christian should be able to say, without blushing, man is good. And maybe you were like, wait a second. Total depravity, though. I thought the whole thing was total depravity. Well, think about it like this. When, when we say as Calvinists that men are totally depraved, we don't mean that the creational nature of man as man is depraved. We actually believe that the creational nature of humankind is a good thing. In fact, a very good thing. Well, you can see why Gnosticism can take root in even Calvinistic circles. Absolutely. Because it despises the whole man. It doesn't believe that in our salvation we're becoming human again. It thinks we're becoming something else. We're becoming glorified man, but... W- God came and became a man to make men back into what they were meant to be glorified, right? So it's like one theologian, I can't remember who it was, he said, so one of the errors we make is it would be similar to if a child knocked over a vase in his mom's house and it broke, and then he concluded that the nature of vases is that they're broken. Well, no, a, va- a vase is, a, is is not broken in its nature. You You corrupted it. Something 
came into it from outside and corrupted it. So the difference is that Christians have this radical concept that, that humanity is a good thing that has been corrupted by sin so that it now desires bad things, but that through Christ, we can be restored. That's a radical, I mean, against Rousseau, a radical concept. Yeah, and Brian, as you were talking about that, it also makes me realize when you look at uh, where our society locates the problem today, right? Not Certainly not in sinful man. Um, they would be very Rousseauian, I guess, in, in this yeah. sense. But I think it also, this is why in political discourse, we talk about things like, you notice that every problem has to be a systemic problem. Yeah. Because the problem is never with like envy in a person's heart. The problem is with the system. The society did it. If, if only we could get the systems right, then we would produce, you know, good, fundamentally good people. Um, but I think what we've actually seen is any of this progressive systematization of whatever you call, you know, whether it's Marxism or, you know, some, you know, uh, fiscal financial policy, whatever it is, it actually generally leads to worse so, you know, the welfare state, well, if we can just alleviate poverty, people in a certain class will be good. They'll be restored to the original goodness. What happens, though, Dan, we find is actually the opposite of that. What's interesting about this Rousseauian idea is that nobody that follows the philosophies of Rousseau is saying, then become individuals in the wilderness. Yeah. Civilization is the problem. And so what ends up happening, I think, I'm no philosopher, is uh, extreme tribalism. To where yeah. there is an oppressor class and there is an oppressed class. And so necessarily the oppressed class must oppress the oppressors or remove their rights or uh, systematize. Like you said, there is some systemic issue. And so what it, what it ends up doing is, is creating these huge divides. And it becomes really easy to dismiss individual sins. Like you said, it's not the sin of envy that's the problem. It's some societal issue. You know, when yeah. there is the truth, like there are peoples that have sins. Right. You know, like, sin is like yeast. Yeah. Well, you think about the, yeah, Dan, the the Me Too movement with women. Because you're looking at everything as categories of systems, you know, white Christian men being the, the wicked part of the system, then, like, when a woman, a woman sins, it's like they don't have a category for it because they're like, well, she can't, though. But she can't. She's the oppressed. She yeah. can't possibly, you know, and, and this is where Christian scripture would obviously come in, but she can't possibly be corrupted in her nature, born of the flesh, you know, a child of the devil, that's a very different perspective than she's basically good and the system corrupted her. Yeah, that's right. So it's easy to dismiss the sins of our day because you can boil it down to somebody else's. Yep. It's some other group's fault that you're in the position you're in. And that's what it's all boiled down to. Yes. No personal responsibility. I'm going to sound like a curmudgeon. Um, I was ranting to Brian about self-rule, taking responsibility. Part of being in a civilization I've heard uh, one author describe civilization as, as not going to the bathroom in the city well. That's a nice way to put it. He put it much more <laughs> crassly. But it, it's like, you know, you're, you're in a society with other people. You have responsibilities. And part of that is being self-controlled and taking responsibility yourself with this Rousseauian idea is that it places the blame on other people. You don't actually have to be self-ruled. Yeah. Because all of the problems that you are experiencing or most of them are imposed on you from some sort of uh, uh, oppressor class. Yeah. And so what it, the fruit of that, and we saw this definitely in like the boomer generation, and not all boomers are like this, just, but you're seeing the fruit of this, is um, the shopping cart test. Mm, yep. Uh, and so I'm at Sam's Club the other day, and there's, and it's, it just happened to be a certain age class where they're parking wherever they want, not in parking spots. 
and then they bring their carts out. I'm waiting for a, a Sam's Club pickup with my family in the car and screaming babies. Anyway, it was great fun. And I'm watching these boomers. They walk to their vehicles and they leave their carts in this, essentially the road, and then they just leave. So they parked in a place where they weren't supposed to park and they leave their shopping carts, you know, just right there by their vehicle, not in a cart. I mean, this, I'm looking at this and I'm like, none of this in itself is actually that big a deal, but it shows that these people don't care. Yeah. This is like, and obviously what happened is that they were blank slates that would have been inherently good, but then society wrote on the blank slate of their psyche the selfishness of not putting the shopping cart back. Right. And so they're able to justify their actions. Based yeah, it wasn't on- me. It's always a blame shift. Yeah, I was going to say the net result is I think this is why counter all that, like Jordan Peterson has been popular because he's been talking about take personal responsibility. Wherever you see responsibility being abdicated, you have an opportunity to take ownership and become a leader and all this stuff. But fundamental to all this, again, Rousseauian idea of human nature it leads to a lot of popular culture things that we talk about, like victimization or victim culture, you know, people not wanting to take personal responsibility. Yeah. The Even things societally, like, uh, you know, I took out a $100,000 student loan, but somebody else should have to pay it back. Well, why? You know, why would that be the case? Yeah. But in this model of thinking, it's like, well, I'm basically good. Mm-hmm. The You know, society or the system screwed me. Yeah. And so now they need to fix it. This isn't actually my fault. Yeah. And I think sometimes people respond to Rousseau in kind of a really oversimplification where they, where they think that what Rousseau was saying is that there used to be cultures that were like utopias, savages, and that we've declined. His point wasn't actually that ancient peoples were, you know, were good or, or their societies were utopias. He's imagining a hypothetical society where you removed all of the influence of societal corruption and then you could have this utopia sort of idea. It's funny that, you know, ideas have consequences. So ideas have consequences. And and one of the things that actually came out, well, there's a few things that came from Rousseau. One of them was the French Revolution, right? Like almost directly. And and we would probably all here say, right, net, net negative. Net negative. Think about like the motto of, this is still the motto of France, liberté, égalité, uh, fraternité, the liberty, equality, fraternity, or brotherhood. And it's this idea that the oppressive political class with its Christianity and all these other things needed to be thrown off so that we could return to these natural virtues of man that man naturally longs for, which is liberty, equality, and brotherhood. And what's which fun- has been adopted today as the uh, yeah. diversity, equality, inclusion. Exactly. Well, then- I mean, it was wholesale adopted by Thomas Jefferson, yeah. who just happened to write a lot of it into our you know, in our in our uh, he was, legal documents that founded the country. So. Bro was a Francophile. Like he had an uh, he he had an unnatural love for French. I think yes. it was it was the ambassador there for a time. Is yeah, that right. And as a French as a French man, uh, French I Canadian, I want to as a uh, as a uh, what is it? What do we call it? Like the uh, generic version of a Frenchman, the French Canadian. We just offended everybody in Canada. I was I was gonna go into the whole like. Quidamon thing oh, here we go. Is, Le we've already you done. just said a pastry name. It's <laughs> Le Fide du Roi. The Pope himself is French. Well, the Pope may be French, but Jesus is English. You're on. Yeah! Yes! <laughs> oh, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the pastry is good. <laughs> you just said a pastry. Okay. But, but your great-grandma, the <laughs> king's woman. <laughs> I was, was, was going to actually uh, anyway. <laughs> input here my knowledge of French-Canadian culture, so I like ice hockey. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. That's your hoser. That, that's all I Yo got. Hoser. That's, that's literally all I got. Yeah. There you go. Hey, proving that we are the manliest of peoples. Not really. Okay. Anyway, you, you look at something like the French Revolution as fruit of Rousseau, and you can immediately judge the character of the ideas. <laughs> because it turns out, actually, that out of the heart of fallen man, you do not see a wellspring of liberty, equality, and brotherhood coming out. But rather, you see a wellspring of might makes right, slavery, and hatred. Like, when, when Paul says, I think it's either to Timothy or Titus, he says, like, this is what fallen man did. They passed their days hating one another and being hated. <laughs> like, that's the actual, if you look at the noble savage, he's actually kind of ignoble. So, so ideas have consequences. Another area where Rousseau has had an incredible amount of influence that not many people appreciate, I think, is in the world of education. Because he wrote Emile, one of his books was all about education. And, and this is hilarious. Because, you know, Dan, I'll let Dan talk about his, his fatherhood a little bit. But, you know, you look at, uh, <laughs> and out, of, out of his educational theory, you get things like Montessori education, where the kids are like, oh, they just self-educate. They oh, like all, the unschool. The unschool, of. yeah. Because yeah. if you just leave them alone, they'll, they'll interact with the environment and they'll, they'll figure it out. They, yeah, they, they don't, will interact with the environment. <laughs> That's right. Their environment, like my garage, where they pull yeah. my wood saws out of my toolbox, and then they start using their scooters yeah. down the middle of the road while swinging saws at one another. They steal kill. Is that the Is that the noble savage? The noble I savage. think that's natural man. Natural is what man. that is. Fallen <laughs> like, man. Yeah. <laughs> he. So you get these ideas, and you start thinking about how powerful of an influence is it in an entire educational system if you believe that children are basically good in their nature. And that their desires, if left to themselves, would be basically good desires. How does that affect how you, you know, approach curriculum or how you approach the philosophy of education? We're over against that at something like St. Brandon's Classical Christian Academy that we founded. One of our abiding ideas is that people love badness. They have bad taste. Yeah, preference for badness, they, like C.S. Lewis says. Yeah, they, they don't appreciate it. They don't know what the good, the true, and the beautiful is. And so what you actually have to do is train them in virtue, which virtue comes from the Latin word vir, which is man, the ideal man. You're saying you are not the ideal man. If left alone, you will prefer twaddle. You will prefer Disney board books that are absolute garbage over you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, like if you're left alone. If I leave my kids alone in the house, they do not naturally read Plutarch. No. That has, to be, that has to be trained into them. But I also think it's funny because a lot of people in popular culture actually got this, too, with, like, say, Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Like, that was actually more realistic. If you leave boys alone completely. Now, and the thing is, there is some truth to this. Like, um, you know, young kids tend to have, you know, healthy imaginations. Um, they can, at least. And, like, yeah. they're really good at, you know, Jesus pointed to kids and, like, you know, have the faith of a child. We get it. There's there's some things that are uh, really good about that phase of life. Uh, but yeah, to your point, they're not going to ascend to this, you know, the greater learning or character or virtue yeah. uh, without really intentional instruction. Yeah, that's right. They have to be trained. And actually, again, a radical Christian idea uh, that man... Man is a good thing that was corrupted by sin, and that the restoration and salvation of man and sanctification and glorification of man comes from the, the, the restoring or the resurrection of the seat of their desire. That the problem with man is that they want bad things. They want to sin, and so they sin. So to fix that, the Christian gospel says, what you actually need is to give them a new heart 
with the law of God written on it and the spirit in them so that they'll walk in his ways, their desires will be renewed. So let me, let me ask you guys this question, because some people have listening, they're probably recognizing the influence of a book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution, which is a, honestly a very solid book, even though I have my qualms, <laughs> I have my quibbles with Carl Truman, and, her, and the biggest quibble's name is Amy Bird. But uh, <laughs> this book is actually a tremendous book. He called the idea that resulted from Rousseau and company the psychological self. The psychological self. So what do you guys think of that term? What does that call to mind? Do you think it's accurate? Do you think that's a helpful term? The psych man as the, the psychological self. Reading Truman on this is helpful as well because part of the problem is, you know, really I would say like 1960s and onward, we really became dominated in our American culture by psychological therapeutic language. Yeah. Um, so this is even something that you have to be really careful with books like Wild at Heart by uh, John Eldridge. Ooh. People don't realize it, but like Robert Bly, uh, who he got his stuff from, I mean, through and through a bizarre, crazy Jungian psychologist. Mm. And there's some really good stuff there, but there's also a lot of stuff that is just pagan nonsense. Yeah. Um, then you go back to things like Freud. We don't realize how much psychology has invaded the pulpit. Um, one of the things David Pallison was so great about, I took a, a few courses with him, the late David Pallison now. Um, brilliant man, but he he began his career in psychotherapy. Yeah. And then uh, became a Christian counselor. Well, so he had been exposed to kind of everything. And so one of the things in the biblical counseling course at Southern Seminary that he he kind of opened our eyes to see, he was like, you guys know what Freud said? you know. <laughs> and so he'd read quotes, yeah. and Freud would say things like, I would replace every church in Europe— with a psycho psychological clinic. Yeah. I mean, this Oof. guy was, as we'll talk about, he was bathed yeah. in sexual sin. Yep. And we're going to talk about, you're going to, oh, you're going to hear some things about Freud. But dude, that guy was a perv, I think is the technical term for I it. think it is a technical <laughs> term. So what? one of the ways that I, I mean, I'm thinking through this question, the psychological self, how it's invaded the church and most of our society Seems kind of innocent, but like personality tests. Oh, absolutely. Personality I'm so testing. glad you brought this up. Because the key then to relationships and to write, even like spiritual gifting tests kind of come into this, the key to right relationship with God and to men becomes knowing yourself. Yes. Knowing yourself. And so the psychological self becomes the key to your relationships with people and with God. And so I think that's become somewhat problematic. Yeah, that's that's actually huge. I remember probably one of the greatest Mark Driscoll rants of all time. He's and like, there have and there were many. There, there's a lot of them. But he said, "You're not an INTJ." He's like, "You're a JERK." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, Mark, get him, Mark." But, but yeah, I mean, you think of the uh, enneagram, the enneagram, oh, the enneagram. We actually went to a church with uh, Jeff and Beth McCord, who are she's like one of the foremost like female. No, because what they tried to do is they took Tim Kellerism, the gospel centered Tim Kellerism, redemptive historical preaching. And tried to combine it with Enneagram. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it gets into all this stuff that um, you're trying to view people fundamentally differently than Scripture. So I would even say when we're talking to our brothers, when like, you know, I was influenced by the psychology too, and it was like, people would be like, well, why did you say that to your wife? And I was like, I don't know, I was mad. And they're like, no, 
It's because the wound your father gave you. <laughs> and I'd be like, wait, what? It's because you're. It's the wound your father gave you, and you're a, and, a you're a I three J wing four. And you can see how this could be attractive to people because it's another opportunity to shed. Well, it's you know, blame taking response. Yeah. yeah, taking responsibility. Yeah. So, Eric, I want you to cue up the Mista clip here because uh, when we were in a church planning network that shall not be named, you know, one of the reasons we left it was because it was just going. It's like going woke. Like, it was going. Really, really fast. woke, real fast, and Mike Mike Cosper was involved in it, and I remember going to um, like a retreat with it, and one of the the breakouts that you could go do was they had enneagram specialists come in, no, and they would die, they would tell you what you are, they would do your whole, and then it was actually a sales pitch because then you could have them come in and do your whole elder team, you know, and like it would, and it was pitched as like, look, guys, this is just a tool to help you, uh, it will help your leadership team understand it's just a helpful friction. analytical tool yeah <laughs> you are gay well it's like if if man is good and play the clip mister should i call you mister why are you gay exactly you are gay if man is good then the pro- the answers to his problems lies within it it, it lies in sanctified navel gazing where you, you, the deeper you look into your own belly button you will find the answers to whatever ails you what and, and all of those are from society and the answers are within. This is like talking about culture, the psychological self. This is what's behind all of the I'm going to after high school go on a six month backpacking tour of Europe to find myself. Like because apparently your true psychological self is somewhere in Bavaria in a hostel drunk. <laughs> you know? But it, it really does. Like when you're reading a lot of this popular literature, it is so seductive. I mean, I remember reading this stuff in college and I was like, yeah, I mean. There is a part of me that would rather backpack through Europe yep. and not do anything and quote <laughs> find myself. I'd rather do that than take responsibility. That's right. You know, yeah. Yeah, and I I would say the other thing here that's that's interesting is um when you're actually reading these authors that are popularizing this, it reminds me of something. This is an old quote, but Michael Foster brought this up the other day, right? When he said, you know, you can have all the intellectuals of the land, just give me the poets. You yes. know, I'd rather have them because Again, a lot of this stuff, it's not like people are going to like seminars at Berkeley, most people, and going like, yeah, I'm going to teach Rousseauian romanticism, psychological self and romanticism. Yeah. Or e- even, you know, I think this is something that the poets help popularize, no? Yes, absolutely. Nobody's reading Emile. I mean, people are. But Truman in his book actually demonstrated how the poets of, so you've got Rousseau in the 1700s. Well, then in the 18 and 1900s, you have poets like Wordsworth and Shelley and Blake and a a whole company of poets that came along. They were steeped in this intellectual culture of Rousseauian romanticism and all this stuff. And then they took those ideas and actually they had this fundamental worldview that it was the poets who would change anything. You you couldn't change anything without the poets because the poets had to take the ideas and put them in a way that all of the natural men would understand and and get before the whole culture, right? Like you can't actually change the thinking of an entire people unless you can get the intellectual highfalutin ideas down into the blue collar everyday culture. And that's how, I mean, and that's how the poets worked. So today it's like, you guys, what do you think about this? Does the modern media of our day serve a similar function as like the priesthood of this pagan confession? Yes. And I will tell you why. There was a yeah. brilliant article I read some years ago. It was on Netflix. Uh-huh. It was by um, it was Brian French, Sauvé. A Frenchman. A French, yeah, a French Another Canadian. French. 
uh, a Frenchman named Brian Sauvé at dot. Anyway, uh, it was on Netflix, and essentially that Netflix is a liturgy. It is training you in righteousness as the world sees, as the priests who are curating these resources and entertainment is um, distilling it so that yeah. people can consume it and be conformed by it, because that's what a liturgy is. Yep. You're being indoctrinated and conformed to something. And so you can yeah. see that, I mean, if you guys have interacted at all with anything that Christchurch does or Doug Wilson, you'll know that if there's this cosmic battle going on, essentially, where Christ is putting all of his enemies under his feet, Christ hovers over all of human existence and every square inch says mine. And there are counter battles going on with yeah. the enemy and demon gods. And we're interacting with some of these high places right now. They have their own priests. They have their own blasphemy laws. They have their own liturgies. They have their own doctrines. And so the way that they're operating right now is to shove that stuff down your throat. And it's becoming more and more obvious, such as Disney saying, you know what, we're actually going to make a whole bunch of our stuff really gay and have a lot of trans stuff in there so that your kids become indoctrinated, especially since you won't let us teach them this at school at a really, really young age. This conversation actually bleeds over into many other conversations that we are going to have later on. But that's that's what I would say as far as, you know, the, the liturgy and the priests of our day. I don't know what you think about that, Eric. Yeah, I, I think it's exactly right. And I think it's not necessarily new. When you look at things like Plato, right? Plato said, and I'm quoting here, those who tell the stories rule society. So that's why he wrote so much about telling stories to youth in the Republic and other places. Paul Oster is another one. And he said this, quote, stories shape reality and those stories therefore shape human beings. So I think, um, you know, somebody that I, I learned this a lot from is uh, Lee Habib. Lee is, I think, a president at Salem Radio. Uh, but he said one of the, the failures of conservatives is that they let the left tell the story of America. So true. And it's been cultural suicide. And Lee was really good about this. He's like, why, why are people on the left so much better at telling stories? Whereas, like, you know, Republicans and people, conservatives, even people in our camp, a lot of times we're like data number systematic theology guys. Yeah. And the people on the left are telling these amazing, beautiful stories. And unfortunately, a lot of times they're just not true. Um, you know, they're doing things like glorifying sin. But I can think of something like um, The Lord of the Rings. How many people do you know who are like, you know what changed my life? It was Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. <sighs> okay, take that person. Now, I, lo I loved a lot of his systematic theology. Sure. I'm not knocking it. But I'm saying now take the person who says Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Or the Chronicles of Narnia. Like, Lord of the Rings does something to your heart that makes you love truth. And yeah. so what I would say in all of this is the 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 conservatives, Christians especially, we just need to get so much better at understanding how stories and narrative works. Yep. And that we need to be the ones who are actually competing fiercely for this space. It's like, you know, Lewis talked about stories and poetry and art as sneaking past the watchful dragons that guard your heart. And those watchful dragons are things like familiarity. You know, that you're you're, you're so familiar with, with these rote didactic concepts. Like, yeah, I learned my catechism, and that's good stuff. Like, it's great. I learned my theology. But then why is it that still kids who know their catechism end up being discipled by Disney Plus? Well, it's because story sneaks all, it goes right around those dragons and that are guarding your heart, and it gets right into the center of it. So you need, I mean, this is why I'm so, uh, you know, pro, you need guys like N.D. Wilson. Oh, big who, time. Who are writing fantasy novels and writing novels for children and young adults and that are good good for adults too, that embody and and, and put into in story um, the, the, the Christian faith. Like, we need, we need every generation, you need Christian 
artists and Christian novelists and you know Christian uh, poets that will come, Christian musicians who will come and and say, yeah, like Noah Gunderson, the apostate, is indoctrinating teenage kids with his music to abandon the living God because his music is beautiful. And what you need are Christian artists and Christian novelists. What we're emphatically not wanting to do with this podcast is just convince a bunch of people to become uh, to, to get more systematic theologians out there. We need guys who are doing everything from like being Christian plumbers to being Christian authors because it, it, man is not just a brain on a stick, you know, walking around. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think part of this is uh, how do you conceptualize man is purely this psychological, like when you, you ask people today, they're like, why did you do what you did? Well, I had the serotonin was firing and, the, yeah. you know, it's this, uh, it's all the mind, like the brain in your head and, and psychological and thoughts and ideas. But I, th- I think you're absolutely right. The way we bypass that is you tell a better story that people want to be a part of. It, this is why liturgy is so important too. Yeah. And this is what I was going to say, Brian, is, is, are we, you know, I don't know what you would call it, homo psychologia or whatever it would the Latin be, but maybe we're actually homo liturgicus. Yeah. Like we are man as a liturgical animal. And the whole point of the liturgy is training your heart to love things. Yeah. Homo sapien means wise man, literally wise man or thinking man, sapient. And uh, I think maybe it was Doug that said we should really actually come homo adirans, worshiping man. Mm. You know, he's because we are what we worship and we worship what we love. We love what we see and behold as beautiful and good and true and glorious. And so that's why when this is why something like gay marriage wedding photography is such a, a hill to die on, because what they're asking you to do in taking pictures for a gay marriage ceremony, gay mirage ceremony, is you're you're supposed to be making this look beautiful. So that people will look at it and say, wow, that's glorious. Look at those dudes kissing each other. That's so beautiful. Yeah, normalizing right. sin. Not showing That's how they do the, it. Not showing any of the health or negative effects down the oh, road. Oh, yeah. They're not going to show, like, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, hemorrhoids from men sodomizing one another. Yeah. Right. You know, I'm such a big fan of the classics. I really don't want to talk about that anymore. So yeah, thank I'm you. such a big fan of the classics. The classics being of Western civilization, the Western canon. And you'll notice most of those books, most of them, with like, you know, a few exceptions, are stories. There's stories because that have st- have staying power. And so these, what would you put on that list? Odyssey? Uh, yeah, the Odyssey, Iliad. the Aeneid. Uh, uh, I don't know. There's um, Russian authors. Oh, yeah, Dostoevsky. Yeah, I, Crime and Punishment, I think, is probably my favorite book. I think it's one of the best books ever written. That's what about the inspired. Bible, Dan? That's oh, not inspired. He headed me off. Yeah, Tolstoy, you know, some of the Russian guys, they're pretty good. Uh, I just read um, What's His Face? The Spanish guy. You can tell. Oh, I'm you're really, talking. I'm really like real. Don Quixote. Don Quixote. Don Quixote. Yeah. Uh, anyway, phenomenal book. Really a slog. Anyway, these there's a reason that those books have staying power. It's because of human stories, and there's something recognized in that across time and cultures by humans that have special insight into our humanity, the issues of humanity, the valor of certain men and and transcending our mundane everyday lives in acts of valor and sacrifice and virtue. And those things do change people. Like you had said, who has been changed by a systematic theology? Like, well, your mind has been changed, but, but you don't read a systematic theology book and then think I'm going to go 
and fight. I'm going to charge go the build. hill. I'm going to, yeah, well, right. That's... No, you hear stories about like Chesty Puller or about William Wallace yeah. or some of these great or men. Caleb. Yeah, Caleb or Gideon or yeah. any of these guys. And you're like, yes, yep. I, I am going to, I want to be like that guy, like yeah, that yeah. person. And that's why the image of God being in a man is so important. God putting on flesh and walking among us yeah. so that he, we had something that we could aim for, you know, as one of the right uses of the law. It's why it's one of the reasons why I'm not going to say his name out loud. I'm going to spell it because I think we will get censored by the AI. A-L-E-X-J-O-N-E-S. It's why he's always yelling and like doing these battle cries like, you will eat the steak. You will live in the land. You you will have a beautiful wife and five children and you will catechize them in the Christian faith and you will not be turned gay by the water and you will not drink the fluoride. Like there's a reason that. Take the ducks home. Yeah. Take the, you, anybody can take the ducks. The ducks are free. Like there's a reason that he has millions of people listening to him and it's because he doesn't go we are now going to go off on a very intellectual treatise on how the modern culture is making you gay no he's like passionately inspiring you and telling a story yeah i was going to say last thing in in you know thinking of some practical things here pastorally i think the black church in the south is really good at this uh, so recently i've been mm-hmm. exposed to a lot of guys through media industry talking to black pastors um, some of them who, who've been around since and with Martin Luther King Jr. I was talking to one wow. guy this week who was in the Montgomery Church when it was bombed with MLK. And this is one of the most base dudes on the planet. And he's 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 talking and I'm listening to him preach. And I'm thinking to myself, they are so good at telling a story using words in a way that is just like you find yourself getting sucked in further and further and yeah. further. He does not stand up there and be like, yeah, page one of the phone book. Yeah, starting with Adam's. The A's. <laughs> Adams. Aardvark. The Aardvark. Aardvark you know who is a really good storyteller, by the way? I'm going to plug one of our friends. Brandon Meeks, at oh, No yeah. Jesuit Tricks, at No Jesuit Tricks, on Twitter. Every Sunday, I'm pretty sure, every Sunday he yeah. comes out with a story. And, I, I mean, I can't believe Twitter's free. Like I they, know. He should be charging them. Well, you guys should go support him on where, you know, I think he's got a Patreon or he's got he's got some kind of thing you can go support him. Yes, yes. So you should you should. Definitely go onto Twitter, read him, and then support him. Because yeah. after you read his stories, his last one this last week, <laughs> the was, intruder. Yeah, the intruder. Oh, I mean, yeah. that is yeah. that was gold. Did you read that? You didn't read so, that. Someday, gold. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. of these days, we'll have to get uh, Meeks on here. Yeah, I was for, thinking for about that. I, I mean, I'm dead serious. I was yeah. thinking about offering him money to give me advice on how to write stories like he does. Yeah, like I will give you money, make me. Good and I have a feeling that his answer would be, "Well, you need to live in the South for." you know, 40 years. Yeah. And read a lot of really amazing. Yeah. And then you might have a chance, but incredible preacher too. So, yeah. yeah. So guys, let's, let's keep moving because we're, we're starting to get into some of the other categories here in the confession of faith of the, uh, this, the humanists and the demonic ideologies that, that are in the land. The second entry in their confession is that, so not only is what have we said so far, man is good. Rousseau, the natural man, you know, we could look at Baruch de Spinoza. There are other people who are influential there. Descartes had a lot to do with that. But we also have, number two, man is animal. Man is animal. You know, you, you think 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 about this. You have, I think he died, what did I say, in the, the end of the 1700s, Rousseau dies. Beginning of the 1800s, Charles Darwin is born. And a lot of the ideas about this psychological uh, man as good, the noble savage, his nature is good, one of the things that results from that is that man is kind of malleable, right? That his nature 
can change, that he can, you know, he's a plastic sort of stretchy clay. You can move him around and bend him into different shapes. And and one of the one of the ideologies that helped that become culturally normal to think of people as having basically rubber and clay selves that they could mold themselves is actually, believe it or not, Darwinism. It's this idea from Darwin that man is just a highly evolved animal. So a, a lot of his ideas, Darwin's ideas, weren't original to him. It's not like all of a sudden in the 1800s, someone for the first time thought maybe people came from animals, right? You can go back to the ancient Greeks and find proto-evolutionary ideologies. And also before that in the scientific revolution, you can find proto-Darwinian evolution ideas, Darwin became the most influential kind of headwaters of this idea that man is literally animalian. And animalian refers to the the taxonomic kingdom that includes all animals. So if you pick up like a 10th grade, I remember this, you pick up a 10th grade biology book and a textbook, and it will say that the animalian is a taxonomic kingdom that includes all animals, including humans. And it just casually slips those two words in there in a way that actually blows up everything that man is animal. You know, Western man had already been building his intellectual and philosophical babble in defiance against the living God by the time Darwin came along. But what Darwin did was he gave man the last needed excuse to sort of cast off all vestiges of the Christian faith. Like Richard Dawkins wrote in his highly influential book in 1986, The Blind Watchmaker. Even if you don't know the title of that, you've heard ideas from this book. He, he said, quote, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And since then, Darwinism and all of the you know successors of neo-Darwinism has been what another new atheist, Daniel Dennett, called a universal acid, eating its way through just about every traditional concept and leaving in its wake a revolutionized worldview. So from Rousseau and the psychological, the psychologizing of, of human beings and the, you know, preaching the innate goodness, we have this second entry in the confession of faith of modern man, which is that man is an animal. Do you guys think it's fair to say that most people assume that Darwinism is true in our culture and most people believe that it, it, as a story, the story of how we came here, the origin story? Yeah, I think it, it absolutely does. Um, I'm often shocked, having read, sort of been red-pilled, obviously, now uh, about creationism. When you when you grow up in the world, you don't realize how much Darwinism is everywhere. Oh, yeah. And how many of the really ridiculous, stupid claims that they make that people are like, oh, yeah, that's true. Like, <laughs> it, it's always like, well, 10 billion years ago on a Tuesday, a turtle ate a frog and you were birthed. And people are like, yeah, naturally. Yeah, totally. That does actually make sense. You know, a lot of the claims are completely foolish, but but I was even thinking, in, again, a lot of literature, a lot of, you know, popular areas on Twitter, you can think about paleo, uh, the people who are into, like, eating meat and wearing Vibram, like, you know, not, not wearing, like, you know, padded shoes and stuff like this. These people, all of it is based on a fundamental assumption that we evolved from something, like an animal, and that that prior state was better. So there's just so many errors in thinking I would say, that are wrapped up in this. The other thing that's interesting about it is, I would say, adopted by a lot of Christians today. So huh. what's weird is that you can have Dawkins say that, like, look, evolution is great because it's the acid that destroys Christianity. And Christians are like, no, I think these are compatible. Yeah, Genesis was really talking about, like, billions of billions and billions. We need that in our soundboard. Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years and 
you know, there was like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what that really means is, in the beginning, God created some rocks. We're they got Adam struck and Eve, by, wa- by lightning. <laughs> we're Adam and Eve, really historical people. Oh, they weren't. Guess what? Human sexuality, out the window. No, they, they emerged from a group of uh, proto-hominids that, uh, that uh, you know, it, it's a metaphorical story that tells the origins of our cultural I told you that we'd start speaking with a nasally voice eventually <laughs> if we kept bringing up these big intellectual names. Here's what I'll say, Eric. I, I agree with you. And the reason I agree that I, I was thinking about, do most people actually believe this? I mean, this is insane. Like, what other creature can make oil paintings? <laughs> yeah. Architecture. Code a computer. Or mine the, you know, the materials that are necessary to make a microchip. Right. I mean, it to me, it's just, I mean, it's stupid. It's, well, it's This is silly. Yeah, I mean, even even the like you're kind of getting at the link between, say, like gorillas. Yeah, people are like, oh, we came from chimps. I'm like, a chimp can't do like one. Oh one no, it can use a stick, and it sticks it in an ant's yeah. bill so that it can ant. So it uses a tool. Therefore, it's a highly intelligent. Be- I'm like. My kid, who can barely walk, knows how to use a fork. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, come on. So, so anyway, that the reason I say that I I agree that I think it a majority of people would believe this is because of the Christians. Because you get a good barometer based on social pressures. Because of the new atheists, they're not intellectually honest, and so their main goal is to attack through ad hominem mm. attacks to make people feel like idiots. And so Christians being somewhat naive at times um, because they don't know the playbook of the enemy being they're going to make you play by their own rules. They tend to be more agreeable. And so this is one of the areas where they try to find common ground, I believe, is because they look at certain uh, geological structures and they see the layers and it's right there. And somebody says, yeah, that's, you know, there's billions of years in evidence here, all the layers, we're going to identify them. You'd have to be an absolute idiot yeah. and a sucker. You know, are, do you do the, are, do you have a season pass for the arc tour? Ken Ham, is that your thing? You know, like <laughs> that's the kind of, and, and that's the rhetoric they use. Yeah. And so it becomes invaded, you know, it inva- invades the Christian community, the Christian yeah. faith, and they try to compatibilize it. Yeah. And, and the, 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 on the practical level, how did the, how did we get here? Well, because they hijacked the public education system. Oh, right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it's yeah. through and through hijacked. So, again, you know, you, you tie this all to, like, okay, on the Christian view, like, well, how would we win in a view of, like, instilling Christendom in people and creation? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, the world that God made and what he made you for is the source of all morality. Yeah. Well, you would teach your kids to fear the Lord. Yeah. You, you would teach your kids in such a way that they would have Douglas Wilson's reaction to evolution. He wrote an article, I think, I, I might get this wrong, it's off the top of my head. I think he wrote an article called Evolution as an Uncommonly Silly Idea. <laughs> you know, where basically uh, Doug goes, look, you guys, evolution is, is wrong, right? And, and we can give some, like we could go Stephen Myers. Stephen Myers is a, a evolutionary biologist, Christian, has written some absolutely devastating critiques of Darwinism from an internal critique, meaning that he adopts their whole timeline. I think he actually believes that, you know, he believes all of the the timeline stuff, the billions of years, whatever. So he's wrong on that. But Stephen Myers, he's trained by these guys. He was a biologist working in labs, doing experiments, like highly trained dude. And he's, he's written these books that basically he just walks through like, okay, the Cambrian explosion problem. And he gives us devastating internal critique. You could read it. And I don't know how you could affirm evolutionary biology as a coherent scientific idea after reading his works. And that's what we need to do is 
I think you talked about this in a Sunday school, right? But like, we need to pat them on the head and be like, that's a silly that's idea. That's nice. And so you got Stephen Myers. Great. I'm really glad he's doing that work. And yeah. But what I think Doug's approach there is actually, we need to take it a step farther and do that and say, wait a second. Can I repeat what you're telling me for a second? Out loud. Out loud. You believe, and if you saw 8th Century Woodchipper on Twitter, he shared a, a picture of the most detailed um, snapshot of a cell. It was like a very simple cell. And you look at this and you're like, it is the most intricate. It is magnitudes, orders of magnitude more complex than the most complex microchip that we've ever made. And it's self-replicating. <laughs> and, and you look at that and you're saying that that came about because a long, long time ago, some lightning struck some water and then some stuff happened and then boom, we came out of the goo. Okay, dear, that's nice. You should go have a nap and maybe a snack. You know, like D Doug Wilson talks about our response to evolution, and we need to train our kids like this, should be a good horse laugh, not, <laughs> not like treating it as a serious idea. It's one of my favorite things, actually, when we, we go to the zoo, especially my middle son. People will give him, like, a presentation, and he'll be go, that's not true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he just laughs. That's not true. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say his name. That's not uh, true. Ray, beep that out. Oh, beep that out too. Oh man, for Eric's wife. Oh man, why don't you give him his address? I know, too? might as well. You know? uh, he lives at uh, Ray. Bleep this out. He lives at so, Drive on a. Utah. So I mean, it should be obvious. Every one of these philosophies uh, that we're examining is an attempt to throw off God. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 an attempt to to say you are actually not my creator. You are not the answer. You are not my hope. And so with created man. What ends up happening is you have a creature-creator distinction, and you are not allowed to identify yourself. Right, right. You're not, you're not allowed to create yourself. S same thing with psychological man. Yeah. You know, or the Rousseauian idea yeah. is that uh, it, it allows you to shed, attempt to shed, the creator who made you and your responsibilities to him and to worship him. I think the difference is, like, Nietzsche and even Freud, like, they were more honest about that. Ah. Then maybe people yeah. are today. So you read them and they're like, yeah, we want to replace God. Right. Okay, actually, I want to pause here. This is going to be two episodes, by the way. There's no way we're going to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. And we'll continue to flesh out a strategy for chopping down those high places and seeing those enslaved to these demonic ideologies free to sonship and citizenship in God's good kingdom. And before we go, since I have the mic, let me encourage you to check out another podcast in our network, Bright Hearth, in which my wife and I are actually aiming to equip Christians to recover the lost arts of homemaking in the productive Christian household. This one is going to be, it's for men and women. It's its especially uh, helpful, I think, to the ladies. I think it's a good companion, a good blue-collar practical companion to the work of this show in our aim here. But thanks again for listening, and remember, Festin Alente, make haste slowly. Godspeed, and we'll see you next time in the King's Hall.